I'm excited to say we're changing things up at the Executive Security Podcast today, and uh, we've got a really special guest. We're still going to stay in the spirit of helping people learn about cybersecurity, but we're going to tackle it from a totally different perspective. We've got a thought leader who's got literally decades of experience in cybersecurity and is releasing a new book called A Hacker Mind. Today, our special guest is Bruce Schneier, and I'm super excited about having him as a guest. I was actually the first person I asked to be on the podcast, and his advice was, go do a bunch of these, and then eventually I'll be on. So I'm excited to have Bruce today. For our listeners that are new to cybersecurity, Bruce is literally one of the top thought leaders in our industry. We're going to talk about A Hacker Mind, which is a book that's coming out on February 7th and can be ordered on Amazon or wherever books are available. Bruce, I already ordered my version, pre-ordered it, comes out on February 7th. Just a little more setup here, again, because some of our listeners may not be familiar with Bruce, uh, let me just give you a little bit more of his background. He is a New York Times bestselling author with 14 books. Uh, he literally wrote one of the first books on cryptology. So those that are in college have probably read some of his books. And there's we could digress into Cult of the Dead Cow and uh, all sorts of interesting things that happened when he wrote a book in a digital version and could he send it internationally, but we we'll, that's a whole nother podcast. But his newsletter, Cryptogram, and his blog, Schneier on Security, are must for our uh, listeners. Please go sign up and check out his blog. Bruce is very involved at Harvard, both at the Berkman Kiner Center for Internet and Society, uh, as well as a lecturer on public policy at Harvard Kennedy School, and is on a bunch of foundations, thought-leading ways to think about protecting us in all sorts of ways that we don't even know we're exposed. And last but not least, he's the chief security architect at Interrupt, uh, where he works with a former coworker of ours, John Bruce. So I'm happy and honored to say that Bruce is uh, not only a friend, but a coworker. We worked together at a company called Resilient Systems with John Bruce and had a ton of fun and successfully sold that company to IBM. So with that mouthful, welcome, Bruce. I know. It sounds like I don't ever have time to sleep. <laughs> You're very busy, man. You're very busy. Well, Thank you very much uh, for doing the show. And uh, for our listeners, uh, Bruce really is uh, cutting edge uh, from the beginning of all the things that he's done. And his books are really thought-provoking. So we'll plug it at the end again. It is a must-read for people getting into it. So let's jump into it, Bruce. What the heck is a hack? So interesting question, right? Normally, we think of hacks in the computer field. And someone's hacking a system and gaining some kind of unauthorized access or doing some unauthorized thing. It really is a kind of generalizable term. It's a way of thinking about a set of rules and making them do something they weren't intended to do, right? So a computer system is a whole bunch of rules, it's code, and you're looking for something that the code allows, but is unintended and unwanted by the designers. That's a hack. And you know we have hacks and computer systems you know, for decades. But to me, that's really generalizable that any system of rules can be hacked. So I don't know, the tax code, right? It's not code, it's not computer code, but it's a series of algorithms that take the amount of money you made and output the amount of tax you owe. And that code has vulnerabilities. We call them loopholes. It has exploits. We call them tax avoidance strategies. And it has black hat hackers. We call them accountants, we call them attorneys. And there is an entire industry of finding hacks in the tax code that are used by wealthy taxpayers to avoid paying tax. Now, it's a very different way of thinking about hack, but it is very much the same thing. And you can think of any system of rules that way. And that's really what I'm writing about. 
writing about rules of the market, rules of democracy, rules of society that have loopholes. No, absolutely. It's it's just an interesting way to think about it. Even just reading the summary, I started to kind of work through this whole idea that it is much, it's a term very IT centric, but yet it is a much broader way to think about it. Uh, so in your book, you state you know, hacks can be beneficial or harmful, and that figuring out which is often contested since the intent is contested, and good and bad are often also contested. So can you kind of expand on that? So that's really complicated. When there's a hack against Microsoft Windows, it's pretty obvious that it's a bad thing, and Microsoft patches the code so the hack's no longer possible. But let's take a different hack. In hockey, curving your hockey stick was a hack. We know the player who invented it. Before he invented this hack, hockey was a certain way. He realized he could curve his hockey stick. No one ever done it before. And now the puck flies a lot faster. It gets air. The game is very different. It's more dangerous. It's more exciting. And now the league has to decide, is that legal? Mm. There are lots of rules about what the hockey stick could be, how long it could be, how large the... uh, I don't know what you call the bottom part can be, but there were no rules against curving it because no one ever thought of it. Mm. So here, the hack has good and bad aspects, makes the game faster, more exciting, makes the game much more dangerous. And, you know, you look at the history of the league and they changed the rules, I think, four times about how much curvature was allowed as they're trying to balance these two things. Another Mm -hmm. hack against sports, 1980s, I think, Formula One Racing. Someone shows up on the field with a six-wheeled car. Everyone says, you can't have a six-wheeled car. And the team says, here's the rule book. Doesn't say anything about the number of wheels because no one ever thought of it. Right? Mm. That was a hack. The rules allowed it, but nobody intended it. And in fact, there, the Formula One racing organization eventually banned. The rules now say you can't have more than or less than, in case you had any other ideas, four wheels on your car. Mm. All right. So when you get to the more complicated real world, it's not as obvious that a hack is bad. If I find a tax loophole, is it bad? Is it good? Now there's going to now there's going to be lobbyists. There's going to be legislators. The intent of the tax code is kind of up for grabs here. It'll be mm. really hard to close a tax loophole, as we discover. You're right. Absolutely. It's it's an ongoing kind of problem. And and when I think about sports and life in general, when, when you think about the that intent piece, I think, is one of the most kind of interesting parts of me when I when I think about where you're going with the book, because it is a question of like, if a kid figures out, I'll use a you know, cyber centric one, but if, if a kid figures out a way to get points, you know, is it stealing, right? You know, they figured out a way to get points, right? And now they've got the best, you know, way to kill people on a specific game. It's like, well, is that cheating? Well, you know, it, the capabilities are there available, so they figured out how to do it and others can't, right? It's kind well, of it might int- make the game less fun. Right. So, you know, right, you and I have been flying since forever. So remember mileage runs? Total yeah. hack, right? So frequent flyer miles are, are a way to reward people who fly a lot and and have a lo- and it's a loyalty program. And in these early years, people are figuring out these very low-cost ways to get lots of miles that really subverted the intent of the frequent flyer programs. Now, they were legal. I mean, now they're not breaking the rules. Right? Hacks don't break the rules. Yeah. Hacks find loopholes in the rules. Yeah. And yeah. You know, these days, airlines have largely made mileage runs not worth it. They've been able to figure out 
using computer algorithms where those loopholes were and close them. So mm-hmm. now they don't really exist anymore. But for many years, you know, mileage runs was a total thing if you were a frequent flyer. Right. And speaking of mileage programs, now they're going to crank up all the basically through the pandemic, everybody got high status. So things on United now are all changing and all the programs are changing. So that they're going to hack back, right? They're going to make it harder for us to get any of those benefits. So changing, changing the whole program, I think is really interesting. And there's so, a lot of back and forth in right. this. Gerrymandering is a hack. The filibuster is a hack. It actually invented in ancient Rome. It was really a senator that realized the rules said that all business must be completed by sundown. That's what the rules said. And he thought, no one else thought of it before, if I never stop talking, we'll get to sundown and we have to stop. So I win just by not shutting up. Hmm. The subtitle of your book was really thought-provoking to me as well. It's like how to powerfully bend society's rules and how to bend them back. So why did you choose that as a subtitle? So there's a couple of... uh points in that. The first is that it's generally the powerful that are doing hacking. In the computer field, we're used to the hacking as a countercultural thing. The powerless hack computers. But actually, the powerful do also. The NSA might be the world's largest hacker because they have the largest budget and the largest need. So hacking is something the powerful do. When you get to political, economic, market systems, it's generally the powerful that found find the hacks. And the tax loopholes that survive are the ones the wealthy use. If the poor figure out a loophole, IRS closes it pretty quickly. If the rich do, it might stay open for years or decades or be open forever. Mm. And the same with hacks against regulatory systems. Right? The, the rich and powerful are better at finding hacks because they can pay people to look for them. Mm. They're better at exploiting them because they have more money and power. And they're better at ensuring that they're not closed because they have influence. And so the deck is stacked in favor of the rich and powerful. And one of the things I want to do in my book is is talk about this imbalance and figure out how to undo that. Because we don't actually don't want the rich to have an enormous advantage because hacks are parasitical. Hacks happen at the expense of everybody else. If I figure out a tax loophole that saves me millions of dollars, that's revenue that we are all deprived of. Right? Peter Thiel figured out a hack against Roth IRAs that netted him a bunch of billion dollars tax-free. An absolute abuse of the system, totally legal. But I guarantee you that the legislators that invented the Roth IRA did not intend it. Right. Right? So that money he's not paying in tax is revenue we are all denied. Yeah. So we need to figure out how to undo things like that. The one uh, example that I think about is high-speed trading. Everything is set up for the people that are the most powerful, that can get their computers the closest to the New York Stock Exchange and basically be in front of me as the Joe every day. I'm going to go buy five shares of Apple, and this person's going to be two seconds behind me, you know, and and the ability to take advantage of that to the billions of dollars at pennies at a time. High-speed trading is a really interesting hack. Definitely unintended. If you think about the way stock market is supposed to work, it's supposed to people can buy and sell shares of companies. High-speed trading subverts that, turns it very much into a uh, a numbers game. And you're right, speed is of essence, and being half a millisecond ahead of the uh, the next person means you make the money. I mean, nothing like what we intended the markets to be. Right. Now, it's kind of interesting. There's a really easy fix. Now, if you wanted to patch that system, 
all trades have to go on a five-second clock interval. Right. Now, that has nothing to do with you or I who decides today that we want to trade Apple. Wake up in the morning, we call our broker, we do it, like it takes half an hour, we don't care. All that affects are the high-speed traders that are basically making money in this weird way that subverts the intent of the market. Now, we don't do that. I mean, that's a stupid, easy fix. You can do it tomorrow. And that's because the powerful who are in charge of the market like high-speed trading because they make money at the expense of us. Yeah. So you're probably never going to see that patch. Yeah, I, I, I think the piece that I saw in 60 Minutes about this subject was probably, I don't want to exaggerate it, but probably five years, at least seven years ago, it was on 60 Minutes. I've never heard anything about it since. You know, it was just like, hey, here, Joe Public, let's tell you how you're getting kind of screwed. And, you know, and that's kind of the end of it. So well, eventually, yeah. once in a while, high speed traders crash the market. Right. <laughs> and then that's really bad for everybody. Right. But it doesn't happen very often. So it doesn't make the news a lot. Yeah. But that's a good example of a hack. Right. And there are going to be listeners of this who say, you know, that's beneficial. Right. That's a good thing. It adds from market churn. I don't know. I'm going to make some stuff up, right? Right, right? We can pass it. We can have a story of why that's a good idea. Yeah. And here is the interesting discussion. That's a hack, unintended, unanticipated. Is it beneficial or is it harmful? And now who decides? Yeah, the who decides the most interesting. Somebody sitting on the back of their yacht in uh, Monte Carlo making money this way says it's super beneficial. And look at right. all the people. And, I and, and you don't have that in a computer system. Right, because generally the owner of whatever the software is gets to decide. Now you know we we just read recently there was a a giant T-Mobile hack. I saw right. that in the news a couple of days ago. Right, right? I mean T-Mobile is going to fix it. Right, they're not going to say you know maybe it was a good idea that all our customers' information got stolen. They know it's not a good idea, and they're right. going to patch. Right, you don't have that sort of singularity of intent when you get to systems that are more political and economic and even social. Oh, absolutely. Uh, just to plug ThreadX there, um, we're an API security company that was an API breach. Be on the lookout. API breaches are all the time, right? <laughs> you know, right? nobody freaking knows what's in their software anymore. That's the truth. That is the truth. But we're, we're being successful because of it. So next question, Bruce, I, I've interviewed now, uh, I think we've been on about 50 interviews now for the podcast. And most of those were CISOs. And one of the common things that we hear is when I was growing up, you know, CISOs talking, you know, when they were growing up, they like to take stuff apart and figure out how it works. And a couple of them said, but their parents said they broke a lot of stuff. So uh, why are kids natural hackers? You know, kids are hackers because they don't know what the rules are. I mean, if you think about what a hack is, a hack is when you like break the intent of the rule by finding a loophole. You know, kids think outside the box. They don't even know what the box is. I mean, you know, every kid is going to hack their bedtime. Reading with a flashlight under your blanket, total hack, right? I mean, I'm in bed, the lights are off, I'm following the rules, right? Well, no, you're not. And in my book, I have a bunch of examples of kids hacking software to communicate, to try to do something that the system not allows. There's some great stories of kids hacking Zoom to get out of being taught remotely. There's one kid who figured out if he would type in his password wrong enough times, the system would lock him out. And he goes to his parents, I can't get in. I don't know what's going on. That's awesome. <laughs> right? Or, or, or someone changed their screen name to connecting dot, 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 turned the camera off. And now suddenly the teacher <laughs> thought they had uh, 
connection problems. I mean, these are all fantastic stories, right? You just, you want to hire those kids right now for your company. And you know, if we can nurture that kind of spirit of taking things apart and maybe breaking stuff in the process, maybe not, learning how they work, learning how they fail. I mean, that's I think is a great way to teach people to be in the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think about hiring new employees. And one of the things that you think about them as kids in a new business, because they don't know the norms, the cultural norms, they don't know how we've been doing things for six, seven years. And I always say, keep your newness. Don't accept anything that we do. Because just because we've been doing something for three years or eight years doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just something we've been doing. So I want that hacker idea of and I've never thought about it that way. But I, I want them to come out and go, what, what, why do you have this TPS report? And why, why do we do it always on Mondays? Like, do we need that? Or don't we need that? Or is there something that should be done? So that that newness, I think that you see in, in the young is often lost as we grow older and older. And, and yeah, and we form. tend to damp it down. You know, yeah. we don't like that because you know, it's challenging. The kid that does that to you every day is exhausting. Right. <laughs> but we yeah. do want some of that. We do yeah. want that kind of questioning, that kind of way of thinking that that's different because that's how we progress. And in a sense, hacking is how systems evolve. I have a part in my book, I, I talk about uh, Jewish law. I grew up and I had cousins who were Orthodox and they're all sorts of hacks of Jewish law. So they could like watch the hockey game on Saturday you would set the timer on a Friday before sundown to the right time and the right channel. I'm thinking, I mean, this can't be okay <laughs> with the rules, but it turns out the rules are silent about television and timers. And you've got this 2000 year religion that has to adapt to current day. And, you know, these hacks are how they do it. No, absolutely. I think it's an interesting way to think about that whole term. I'm excited to read the book, but just thinking about this in totally different terms is, uh, as you always do, make it thought-provoking. So last question, Bruce, uh, and this is a little bit more specific to our audience. Do you have any advice for people that are thinking about getting into the cybersecurity field? You know, I get asked that a lot just because of where I am. And what I tell people is that do the thing you want. I'm always asked, like, what specialty? And everything is in demand. So if you like software or forensics, or you're a people person, or you're not a people person, whichever specialty excites you is what you should do. Mm. I find it a great field. I love the adversarial nature. You can hear that in everything I'm saying. That's sort of unlike paleontology or anything else. There's an inherent battle between attacker and defender, the stuff I design, and now you're breaking it. And it's fun and it's exciting. And I've always enjoyed it, sort of every aspect of the field. So to do what you want. Don't worry about whether your specialty is the one that's in demand today. They're all in demand. They all will be in demand. AI is not going to take your job. AI is going to make your job better by automating a lot of the boring stuff. But we have an enormous need for cybersecurity professionals in the country and in the planet that is not going away. Plus, if it gets boring, you can become a criminal. So it's great. Exactly. Just take your skills, sit on the different side of the desk. I think it's, for me, uh, having been almost 20 years in the industry and having come out of an industry that consolidated down to three or four vendors, when I started 20 years ago, there were about 200 vendors at RSA and maybe 300 in the market. And we all thought, wow, that's a lot. And when is it going to consolidate down? And now there are 6,000 vendors. 
funded, never mind people that are just starting ideas. And there have been waves of consolidation. Right. It's kind of an accordion industry. You get a, a, a year where everyone buys up the little guys, then you got a whole bunch of new little guys. And then, you know, a few years later, you have another consolidation. So it does go back and forth. Yeah. That, but there's absolutely. always, you know, big companies, IT companies, regular companies, startups, lots of places you can play. You can go work for the government. If you want to become a criminal, but do it legally, you know, right. go work for uh, U.S. Cyber Command. It's great right. fun. Right. Absolutely. And, and the adversary continuously changes the game, which is what makes it, if you want a very dynamic environment, uh, it's what makes cybersecurity so fun because it's API breaches today, it's XYZ tomorrow, and and it's continuous because uh, as fast as we innovate as vendors, as companies, our adversary continues to innovate. And they've got, as you always say, they've got access to all the same tools we have access to. So they're going to take AI and figure out interesting ways to use it so that this industry is going to continue to explode. All right. I think we're selling it. This is great. Yeah. Awesome, Bruce. Well, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. I really appreciate it. For all of our listeners, please go out and uh, order a Hacker Mind. And also please sign up for a Cryptogram newsletter and visit Schneier on Security Blog. Uh, you will not be disappointed by any of that. Thank you again, Bruce. I hope to see you at RSA, if not before. I'll be there. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.